Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. I deliberately chose a closed question so that we could all have a short talk. Answer, the answer is, of course, yes, and now we can have lunch. Um, and I need to show my working, really. I, um, as Simon said, I've been sort of messing around in the, in the data pool for about five years um, and uh, have done quite a lot of training on it. And I've got, in the last three of those five, I've been really obsessed with open data. I sort of see myself as a data-holic, and I'm not prepared to pay, and I don't need to make FOIs because I'm not these days coming up with stories because I'm a freelancer. And then I was wanting to do something sort of rooted in academia, and I offered a, a title to the, uh, or this title, to the uh, Reuters Institute uh, for the Study of Journalism um, back in the spring. And they said yes. And I spent the next six months researching what turned out to be a sort of 10,000-page report under this title. But there were areas in it that I, I suppose, chose or didn't dare to go further than, uh, which I'm going to try and explore at the end of today's talk, because I think the the, the corollaries, the, the, the implications of what uh, data, journalism, data and journalism could do together uh, actually bring us to a new kind of journalism. And I'll talk more about that yeah, later on. So, um, at this point, we find that my mouse has decided not to work, so we go back to good old-fashioned keystrokes. So, just looking around, and data.gov, the U.S. portal... Um, says, well, why are, we using, why are we opening our data? Well, because we hope it'll help us lead to cost savings, efficiency, fuel for business, improvements, better policy, performance planning, research, discoveries, transparency and accountability, and finally, increased public participation in democratic dialogue. That's all taken off the data.gov website, which is fairly typical, and, and there are models... Data.gov UK, Data.gov, all the other ones that they've sort of spawned, either deliberately or, or just by people flattering them with copying, um, have this sort of motherhood and apple pie sort of idea of what, they could, what open data could do for them. And nowhere, I realized, does anybody ever mention the mass media or journalism as an end user. Uh, and I suppose... If we're looking at what journalists might do, I mean, many of those things, but the last two, transparency, accountability, the idea that journalists hold uh, power to account, hold truth up to power. And you could say that if the, if the fourth estate is a part of society, as it should be, then increased public participation in democratic dialogue uh, is something that open data will lead to and journalists will take part in. Um, so... There is a problem, though, that if it's open, it's not that attractive to journalists. News, as I, I think this is Lord Northcliffe, but I've never pinned it down. If anybody knows better, please tell me afterwards. I think it's Lord Northcliffe at the end of the 19th century saying that news is something that someone somewhere doesn't want you to know. Everything else is advertising. And when you look around a lot of what's in our news uh, agendas today, that, to my mind, holds true. And so if you give something to a journalist that you want to him or her to know, uh, that's not news in their mind. There is something, just like engineers have a mindset, journalists have a mindset. And the mindset is, I need to dig, I need to hack, 
I need to maybe steal a password, I need a deep throat type of uh, informer um, or whistleblower, I need uh, Julian Assange to steal stuff and give it to me, whatever, but not openness. It's just not attractive enough. And yet, in open data, people are doing stories. The Guardian, which will be the, the next couple of slides as examples, just using the parliament.uk site and looking at interests of researchers and assistants and secretaries, the interests registered by them, um, if you filter it in a meaningful way, you can get a headline like that, um, and you can expose a bit of lobbying, which, as Cameron, uh, David Cameron said, um, is the next big thing that's going to be wrong about politics in Britain is lobbying. Um, and at the same time, The Guardian has been doing this project, which is an interesting mix of open data, open published data by government, not much, quite a lot of open data in the sense of news stories on the radio, newspapers around the United States, where they're just pulling that in using... Uh, search terms and RSS feeds, and tip-offs from the public. So you can ring up and say, I know of somebody who's been shot by the police in my neighborhood. Then the Guardian will uh, check it out and, if necessary, record it. Incidentally, and this is not really part of my talk, it's just shocking that I took that just after the ODI summit as a screen grab I needed for a course. It was at 9.48, and without much else happening, in, it's gone up from 9.48 to 1,055 with barely a murmur. When I first took a screenshot back in September, it was 675. So around almost 400 people have been killed by the police in the United States in the last three months. And it hasn't really, apart from the odd um, you know, uh, police uh, webcam, uh, body cam, uh, that hasn't really created many headlines. But it's just quite a shocking number in its own right. But that is, to my mind, a good use, a rather interesting use of combining open data, published data, data you collect actively as a, as a journalist, and a bit of crowdsourcing. The other thing is, so if you're, if you're taking the Lord Northcliffe approach, that news is something that somebody doesn't want you to know, then is FOI better than open government data? Um, you know, if you think, well, I'm a smart journalist, I think there's a question here. One of my favorite uh, FOI questions that I read about uh, in the Times, ooh, maybe as long as 10 years ago, by Heather Brook, um, before she became famous for MPs' expenses, um, she FOI'd all the police forces in the country and asked them to tell her how many um, police cars, how much money had been spent on repairing police cars that had been damaged when they put uh, diesel in instead of petrol or vice versa. In other words, how thick is PC plod? And then, when she got an answer, which was a substantial amount of money for 42 police forces, it was quite a lot of money, uh, then she had an afterthought and she FOI'd and how many of those uh, were damaged after they fitted the foolproof cage that stops you putting the wrong spout into, the, or into your petrol filler cap. Um, and it was, again, quite a substantial amount of money. In other words, PC Plod had been forcing it in and taking the wrong fuel. But that was FOI. It would, you wouldn't, perhaps even now, find that data in open government data. It's... And... It's part of that thing of saying, well, what I'm doing is investigative and interesting and it's news because I, a journalist, make it news, not because somebody tells me they want to publish it and therefore I should have it and therefore it can't be any good because it's open. So there is a sort of equation there of FOI uh, is, is better than open government data in the minds of, of many journalists. If we're 
depending on what happens with the review of FOI, I suspect we might get to this point, and it's been proposed in the States, and I think it's been mentioned over here, that if you, as a journalist or anybody, do an FOI request and they say, yes, we'll publish it, we'll then publish that as open data. And as somebody in the Pointer Institute in Florida said, oh, right, publish my scoop. In other words, I have a bright idea. I ask you, a government department, for the data, and, uh, and then you publish it anyway. So I've just lost my scoop. So there's a very grumpy response uh, to that of, you're going you're to take away my ability to scoop the world by just publishing whatever I ask you, basically. Oh, that's interesting. That's enlightening. I will carry on by... So there is a question sort of hanging there that open data plus uh, FOI requests, does that equal transparency? Um, if you look at some of the governments who are publishing open data around the world, uh, are they countries where you naturally think of them as open and transparent? Um, I needn't, especially being live streamed, I may, need not risk my visa chances in certain countries by naming them. But I think we can all imagine the ones that are on the list of countries publishing open d data, gov governments publishing open data, and, um, and yet we wouldn't call them naturally transparent. The other user that I don't think is, is being, they are being mentioned as potential users, but I don't think they really exist in large numbers, is the armchair auditor, something that uh, David Cameron referred to uh, back in 2010. When Obama was on the stump in 2008, he said at one of his town hall meetings, hey, you guys can be my eyes and ears, we're going to publish everything. And it actually wasn't, if we tend to remember it as Obama's first executive order, but actually the Republicans had realized that they, wanted, they ought to be opening up data as well. So whoever got in in 2008 would probably have opened data up. Um, and they said, right, so we have this nice phrase, the armchair auditor in Britain. There are very few of them around. I mean, who are they? Where are you going to recruit them from? Are they going to be nerds like me who've got nothing better to do on a winter evening than download a massive data set and go through it? Well, there are one or two, and they're quite interesting ones. Um, Openprescribing.net is if you like, a super armchair auditor or an armchair super auditor, if you prefer. That is a really interesting website using open data and now making it extremely user-friendly to journalists, doctors, um, financiers, and members of the public. But that's taken coders and others and Ben, ben Goldacre quite a while and 50,000 pounds to create a website that is transparently searchable or, if you like, easily searchable and usable by anybody but it's an impressive website. Another one who I think of as an armchair auditor, and he even, when I said so in my, um, in my original report at Reuters Institute, uh, he quoted himself ironically that I'd called him an armchair auditor. This is Tom Forth, who, who does a lot of blogging for City Metrics. And this is an interesting thing. He used open data um, and, and crunched it to show that Britain, London, particularly the Southeast, uh, doesn't use either Heathrow or Gatwick, but actually more places um, are connected to Schiphol than they are. Uh, so you can fly from Newcastle to Schiphol, you can fly from Aberdeen to Schiphol more frequently, and more people use it than use those links down to uh, Heathrow and get on and use Heathrow as a hub even now. So when they complain about it not you know, needing more 
needing more. It's not necessarily um, Heathrow that is in the, should be in the frame, but maybe Schiphol. Um, it's, it's not a very um, visual-heavy uh, lecture, I'm glad to say, especially to people who are listening at home. Um, so I can see what things that you don't really need to see, except that Phil's now just removed that. Um, so I was going to say, uh, you'll have to excuse me because I actually can't remember what my next point was because I need to see the slide. I've done whole day courses using this technology in this room and it's worked all day and it won't even hang on for 10 minutes. Somebody somewhere doesn't, me, doesn't want me to know this. There. Right. So um, there are, in the States, the ecosystem of data is a bit more geared up to people like the armchair auditor. There are many websites that will allow you to do interesting, useful searches. Followthemoney.org, maplight.org, maplight where the map is nothing to do with mapping, but is M for money and P for politics, money and politics, shedding light on that. Um, so there are people like that, there's ProPublica, who not only publish interesting stories that are data-based, um, but they also publish the tools that they used to uh, get those stories. And they make it easier for members of the public and other journalists to work out what's going on. Can I go back to my... Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, interesting failure here. Do you want to switch to... Oh, God. We could switch to um, the HDMI cable. I've got one in my bag. So, we're up to there. Um, the trouble is... And I've got a lovely slide here you're not going to see, which is just mixing up the two words data and statistics in a very confusing and hard-to-read way. But the problem for a lot of journalists and members of the public is that data and statistics are mingled in their mind. And people are not doing journalism with data because they think it's maths, it's statistics. It, I, I was talking to somebody at the BBC about what I was now doing, and I said, oh, I do data journalism. He said, oh we get Michael Blasland, um, the author of um, The Tiger That Isn't, um, to do that. And I said, no, no, you're talking about statistics. I'm talking about data. And I was talking to another former colleague the other day, and, sh and she said to me, oh, I see the Daily Telegraph's doing data journalism now. And I said, uh, what gives you that impression? She said, ah, there's more numbers in their stories. There are more graphs. So people are automatically seeing data and statistics together. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the next thing is that if journalists aren't careful, if they feel they can't get this data, they can't make much use of it, if they're not careful, they could actually be put out of a job by robots. Um, Tony Hurst from the Open University, who runs a lovely blog called OUseful.info, um, as an experiment took um, health data and wrote a bit of code that just turned that into a generic story. It found some statistics, um, crunched a few columns, and turned, and with very simple, a few macros, if you like, turned that into, a, into some statistics, and then turned that into some text, and wrote, a, a robot wrote a perfectly decent story that any press officer would be happy to have written that sort of says, um, use of statins is up 12% in the Nottingshire area. So it had just got all that using the, the bot that he'd written. And he did it, uh, I now gather, partly because the city metrics people sort of challenged him to do it and were going to do some hyper-local stuff. And he was 
saying, well, we could do it automatically. You don't even have to get involved with the, with the data. So then you've got a, a possibility that journalists could, could still not deal with data and still think that data is statistics because the statistics will come through um, through a bot. Excuse me. We don't normally do this as a double act. Um, when I was talking about a session I was going to do at the summit, I was talking to Bryony Phillips here, and she was saying, oh, what are you going to be, what's your report about? And I told her, and she said, ah, big data has won. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, in the, in the public imagination, big data is, looms larger than open data. And it's true. If I talk to my parents about what I do, and I say to my dad, who's a reasonably well-educated, retired um, schools inspector, I say, uh, he says, what are you doing? I say, oh, open data. And he starts talking about big data, and many people do. And that, some of that goes back, you remember, I think it's now about 18 months ago when there was a discussion of opening up um, prescribing data, almost down to surgery level. I mean, they've done that, but people were being told that your health data is going to be sold to um, companies who are going to make money with it, and some of it may not be properly anonymized, and people got very upset, and the NHS thought uh, twice about it. So now we're on to a complete new computer. Do I get to take this home? Um, thank you. Right. Sorry, we'll just catch up. So big data has won, has it? Uh, in a way it has, yes. It's in the, it's in the public consciousness. Um, and perhaps not in a good way. Um, so we go back to my original question. Does open data need journalism? And I sort of flip it around. Well, does journalism need open data? And it, the answer apart from saying yes, is that there's a sort of, well, we've, it does, but we need to talk. The two sides are not really, if you think of those sides, if, I like to think of them as, as two families, like in Romeo and Juliet, the, the Montagues and the Capulets. You know, they don't get on. They have different approaches to life and facts, and they don't trust each other. And both sides are sort of saying, hmm, why would they give that to us, and why would we give that to them? And there's also a sort of strange Catch-22 dance when you, uh, people from local government have told me that, they meet a journalist and they say, we're opening up our data. And they say, oh, what can I have? And he says, well, what do you want? What have you got? What do you want? What have you got? What do you want? And it goes on and on. And, neither, and they sort of, obviously, you, you've got to release something. And then they release say, well, that was useless. Thanks very much. Or, Thanks for nothing. So part of the thing that open data needs journalism is that open data in itself is a story. It is the story of our age. And it's not really frequently enough being covered in the mainstream media, and therefore having some kind of accelerator effect. Because we have to remember that only about three, three and a, maybe four million papers are sold in this country every day. But the way that press reviews are done on, in radio and TV, and the way that things happen on Twitter now, and so on, there is an accelerator effect, a, a sort of a multiplier, that when something's in a paper, people do talk about it, whether they read the paper or not. Um, so open data in itself is a story that should be written about more. And it isn't. Uh, if the data is open, then it's better than being data, having the data. And uh, sorry, if it, that's a minus, not an if. That's a, if open, the data is not opened. It's a more important story than the data being opened. So if the government won't release data, if it won't respond to FOIs, if it doesn't release interesting data that people can use, 
that too is a story, and it's not been covered where it, where it is true. And there was a piece in The Economist a couple of weeks ago, and so they said, given the astonishing scale of the deluge of, of open data, why has more not been achieved? Well, they put it down to four reasons, and it was almost as if they'd read my mind. Um, some of the data, a lot of the data, they said was useless. They said it's hard to navigate. Uh, there are too few people capable of mining it for insights or putting it to good use. There's a sort of data literacy question there. And there are anxieties about privacy. All those are, are kind of true. And I noted in um, uh, Matt Hancock, the minister's um, sp speech about data in Germany earlier this week, that it, there's, I think the British government has recognized that this hasn't been an unalloyed success and that there are, there's a sort of must-try-harder um, has been put on their report card, that they're going to have to think about making it more usable and make it more useful. And if they don't involve journalists in that, then I think it's just going to sort of wither away and it will remain the preserve of um, nerds and, uh, and amateurs and the very odd, in both senses of the word, armchair auditor. Um, and it's just worth reminding, I, I'm not going to bombard you with too many statistics, just this one, that the Open Knowledge Foundation, in its annual survey, the, o the Open Data Barometer, has, I think, in my mind, correctly identified 10 key data sets that ought to be in any open government's um, um, cupboard, or not in the, in the cupboard, but out of it, literally out of the closet. Budgets, companies, data, election data, emissions, legislation, maps, postcodes, spending, statistics, and bus and railway timetables. Now, there's 97, at the last count, 97 countries listed on the open data barometer. That should give you 970 uh, data sets if all 10 of those key ones were out there. Well, you go through it. You've got 970 to start with. Actually existing of those 970, we're down to 837. Up to date, we dropped to 539. You can see where this is going, can't you? Machine-readable, a mere 312. Open, 106. So 11%, 11.7% of that potential 10 key data sets. In 97, rather encouragingly open governments around the world, only just under 12% just under are actually open. One in eight are open, available, machine-readable, etc. So there's a hell of a long way to go, to my mind. The, 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 the thought is out there. The idea that we're going to be open and we're going to share and be transparent is all very good. Um, but the execution has quite a long way to go. So the other problem, and the thing I said I, I just didn't get to in writing my, my original report and sort of run out of time and also the sort of resources I needed to, to, to get people to say this and <coughs> help me prove it, is that <coughs> open data and everything can lead to stories. Open data with stories will lead to openness. We will stop talking about myths. We will have evidence-based policy-making, evidence-based stories. Um, but it will then lead to open, or should lead to, in my mind, open journalism. And open journalism, if you Google that, you get some very mixed impressions of what people think that is. If you think about the implications of open data, open government data for open journalism. It means you go a step beyond that something that somebody somewhere doesn't want you to know. Somebody somewhere has published this data and I have found this policy mistake, policy cock-up, 
um, interesting bit of data, and I'm going to publish it for you. But am I going to tell you where I got it from? I ought to. Am I going to tell you how I did it? I ought to. There was a time only a few months ago, perhaps six months ago, when The Guardian had routinely at the bottom of data stories on the web a little rubric said, get the data. You could click on that, and you could see the data they'd used, and you could reuse it yourself, maybe even find a parallel story of interest to you personally. That get the data button has gone. They haven't had that on the bottom of a data story that I've found for about six months. I don't know if it's deliberate policy. It looks like it, because there hasn't been one for a long time. Uh, and it was such a good... That, to my mind, was the beginning of some kind of open journalism. The Guardian... If you, look at, if you Google open journalism as a phrase, you get um, a speech by Alan Rusbridger, but he's talking about, um, when he was editor of The Guardian, he's talking about openness of sources, citizen journalism, use of social media, be, having comment columns that people can then take part in debates as, as a corollary of the uh, story being published. But that's not the open data kind of open journalism I'm talking about, where you actually spell out what your sources were, what your methods were, I mean, we all know that in a pre-internet world of journalism, people interview people. They take their words out of context, perhaps, but make them interesting in stories. They don't write the entire interview out for you. They, um, they take the bits that they think or they choose that you might be interested in. And so we know those sort of methods. But now that something new, that, that, that open data is, could be and is in places being used as a source, then... They ought to be saying so, to my mind. And that is not journalism as we know it. Uh, and it's probably a step too far. And I may even have gone too far in suggesting it today. And so I'll leave it right there. And hopefully, it won't so much be questions as comments and debate is what I'm hoping to foster. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.